Hey guys, this is the mentor session from week three with Paul Jarvis. Unfortunately, we experienced a lot of technical difficulties in this one. Crowdcast is a real bitch. So at points, you'll hear a lot of scratching and stuff. I tried to remove as much as possible in the podcast version, but stick with it. After about 10 minutes or so, we get problems solved. Enjoy. Sure. So I'm Paul Jarvis. I write. I do stuff. I'm currently... Uh, what am I doing? <laughs> I don't even know. Getting ready to relaunch Chimp Essentials on September 1st. And mostly my focus lately has been software. So I just launched, of course, books. I'm launching um, an auto-dunning software called Payment Badger, uh, hopefully in a few weeks. Yeah, but it, it mostly just software, like UI stuff for software lately. Very cool. All right. All right. Great. So um, let's see. We already got a bunch of questions here. And let's get started. So, oh, my question is uploaded. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So, uh, what's the pitch? Even the exact template, if you have one, that you use to contact sponsors for your podcast. And how do you convince them that advertising and podcast is valuable? Yeah. So I have no pitch. I have no specific template or anything like that. So the the way that it kind of works for me for and I'll talk about my show, the freelancer, because I think that's the most um, the most valuable one is that first of all the podcast that i have is very specific to the audience that it reaches so obviously it's called the freelancer it reaches freelancers so if a sponsor ha a sponsor will have heard of my show or heard of me because otherwise it's it's an uphill battle so the reason that they've heard of me is because i exist in one very specific niche like i work with i have a course called the creative class i write for freelancers I have a newsletter for freelancers I have a show for freelancers so everything is freelancer related that I do. So mm -hmm. the sponsors that I invariably work with are, are companies that want to reach the audience that I already talked to. And then it becomes easy. Then it's not even really a pitch. It's just, can you afford this show? Right? Because they want, because if you niche down to having content for a specific audience, then there's going to be companies that also want to reach that audience with their products. So for example, my biggest sponsor right now is FreshBooks. FreshBooks does invoicing for freelancers. There's, it, they kind of go together with my audience. So, so they know that I reach an audience that they want to sell their software to. So therefore it makes sense. So there isn't really like, I don't have to pitch. I just talk to them. And so, the, so that's part one is being very specific in your niche and getting down to having like an audience that you reach and disregarding everybody else. The second thing is everything in business is connections, right? Like it, everything is who you know. The reason that I'm doing this is because I know you guys. I've talked to Segi for ages. So it's connections. So I know people at FreshBooks. I know other podcasts that are sponsored by FreshBooks. So it wasn't a cold introduction. It wasn't me emailing their like a contact form on their website saying like, hey, I'm Paul Jarvis. I have a show. Would you like to sponsor it? It's it's more of a I know the person in charge of podcasting because I put a lot of time into networking. And whether I'm doing like web design for clients or launching products or selling online courses, it's all the same. It's all if the person if the person on the other side has heard of you then it's not an uphill battle. It, be, it becomes very, even in writing for other publications, the other person, if there's a warm intro from somebody in your network to the person you want to reach, it's way easier to do anything that you need to do. So for contacting sponsors, uh, all the sponsors that I've had have been 
either they've heard about me already and they've been following my work or I've got an introduction from somebody that they know that I also know who's kind of connected like, hey Paul, you should know so-and-so at this company, so-and-so at this company, Paul's doing great work with freelancers, talk. Okay, sounds great. So, sounds great. So intros, as you say, it's like your main connection. Um, and just like expanding on the pitch thing and the, the how to explain to them that it works. I mean, yeah, obviously they are very connected to your audience, but um, like I can say for our podcast specifically, like a lot of companies don't understand the value of, of a podcast, like of sponsoring a podcast because it has no specific way to measure it kind of. Um, so maybe, maybe how do you convince them that it is valuable? And, and the second thing is, um, have you found any specific uh, techniques that you use, like, I don't know, turn them to a specific page on your site or their site or whatever that works for them? Yeah, so that's a, that's a good, I'm glad you brought that up again because I totally didn't answer that the first time. So <clears throat> what we do is it's hard to track passive listens. Like it's hard to track uh, it's hard for sponsors to know like, okay, what's going on. So the first thing is podcasting sponsorships are really good for brand recognition and for brand pairing. So, and what I mean by that is every time my show airs, which is once a week, I talk about FreshBooks or whoever the sponsor is. So that's kind of brand recognition. So every week they're getting mentioned and then brand pairing is they know that I have an audience that respects my work, that knows that I am like an authority or expert, whatever the hell you want to call it, in freelancing. And they're associated with me because every week, Paul Jarvis, the freelancer, talks about the sponsor. So they get that recognition. And then in terms of like measurable data, every sponsor that I've worked with, we've come up with things like UTM tracking or they go to a specific page on my website or their website to sign up so we can actually get some data or what we do is we have um, like a discount or a specific discount code that's unique to my show so then it's easy to because then they just see how many times they've used this and we have for every single sponsor I've had as well we've had like a, a URL on their website like freshbooks is freshbooks.com slash the freelancer so they can track that they can track the views and then they can track the conversions and what we see in terms of showing the, the value, like they make their money back on what they pay me on sponsors every month. By, and, and that's why, and I know this is a question coming up, but I'll answer it now, is I'm booked until next year for sponsors because every sponsor that I've had, we've been able to set up some sort of tracking to measure the effectiveness. And every mm -hmm. single time my podcast delivers, like they end up making more money back on the lifetime value of their customers then they have paid me for sponsorships. And my sponsorships aren't cheap. They're way above what industry average is, but I think industry averages are ridiculous anyways. Cool. Yeah. Can you talk about how long, or if at all, you did the, uh, the podcast without taking sponsorships? And kind of like your thought about when you decided to take sponsorships and how to do it? Yeah, so I'm probably about four or five months without sponsors, or sorry, four or five months where I was using my products to sponsor the show. So the show oh, okay. is brought to you by the creative class, which is a $300 program that I sell or brought to you by chimp essentials or my WordPress thing. So I didn't at the beginning, I didn't have sponsors. So I was my own sponsor because I, I gave myself a deal for free. Right. So yeah, I probably went several months without sponsors. And then once I started to see, okay, well my downloads are like, in the thousands and then higher and then higher. I'm like, okay, now this kind of makes sense to pitch 
sponsors because I know that I'll be able to deliver value because I could see the metrics from the things that I was promoting on my show. And I'm like, okay, this every episode, this is generating like a bunch of course sales for me. And this is generating like a couple thousand dollars. And if I, if I just charged a thousand dollars or $2,000, then I see there's a return on investment and then pitching it is like, it, it becomes a, a, a win. Cool. Did you do you so say you did the same tracking and stuff with your own uh, podcast sponsorships of your own products? Yes, I like made a, a, a URL or well, I made a code like for Chimp Essentials. the The discount code podcast got people fifty percent off when I launched that in the spring. So I oh, could cool. see how many people use that discount, and I could see how much money that generated. And I was like, "All right, this this is this is kind of good." Same with uh, Creative Class. I had a discount code that I tracked, and then it was way easier. Because people like to use discount codes, so it's easier than saying, "Okay, go to like this URL slash this slash this." It's like, save money, use this code, go to the website, you're good to go. Uh, I want to jump to the next question related to your newsletter. So, on the newsletter, you uh, you made the decision to write exclusively newsletter, basically, and to only after a few weeks publish the articles on your website. Can you uh, talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so I don't even publish all the articles on my website. If I remember, I do, but I, I tend not to. Yeah, Adir says that your mic is sounding really crunchy and weird. I'm hearing that too. I thought that was just me. But if everybody else is hearing it, it's really staticky. Uh, okay, so hold on one second. Let's change mics here. I have had to replace the cable on my Rode Podcaster once before, so that could be it. Amazon sells the... Uh, a similar one for like five bucks or something. Amazon Essentials. Is that better? Yeah. Okay. So where were we? Uh, the decision uh, to write exclusively write. for your newsletter. Yeah. yeah. So the reason I write exclusively for my newsletter now is again because of looking at the data. So I was writing for like Lifehacker, uh, Fast Company, Inc., Business Inside. It all sounds great, but it's not. Like none of those things did anything for me. None of those things generated links back to my site none of those things generated signups or sales so i just figured just because they have too many articles yeah they're just content, like lost in they're just content churners so they care about page views and they don't care about anything else they don't care about me they don't care about any of their writers like it doesn't that's just that's the way the industry works they're not bad companies they just that's not their their revenue model isn't to care about other people this <laughs> business yeah. so i write exclusively exclusively for my newsletter one because all the people on my newsletter I like like they wouldn't be there they wouldn't be there if they weren't cool people and I talk to my newsletter subscribers all the time like if I send out a newsletter because I always send out newsletters on Sundays and I typically get 200 300 400 replies and they're all decent like they're all decent people they're all smart people they're all engaging they're all people that I would want to talk to so I would rather put my time and energy into writing for people that I like, for people that I care about. And on the flip side of that, my newsletter is which gen what generates pretty much my entire revenue stream as a product maker. So uh, why would I spend my time anywhere else but where I make the most money and where I have the most fun engaging with the people that are, are reading my stuff? So yeah, it's def it was a no-brainer decision for me. And I didn't notice any, like, my revenue didn't decline because I stopped writing for these publications. Like, nothing bad happened. I was just able to put, it was probably more positive than negative because I was able to put all of my energy into just doing one thing instead of spread out 
in a, okay. in a ton of different places. Yeah. But, but what about uh, not posting on your own blog too, like keeping it in the newsletter and not, I don't care about my website. Like to be honest, I can't, so I care about my website in so much as I want it to generate signups to my newsletter. Like my website is a funnel to my newsletter. So I, if people go there, the only thing I want them to do is sign up. And it's pretty evident. Like if you go to my website, all it is is sign up for my newsletter. Yeah, because your homepage is just that big form on the right. And, you know, exactly, that's because like, that's the only thing I really care about people doing. I don't care if they buy my products. I don't care if they read. I don't care if they share anything on social media. None of that stuff does anything. But if they sign up for my mailing list, then then they're, they're part of it. And then I know that if they see something they like, they are going to buy it from me in the future instead of just having one chance on a website. Like if they see a product on a website and they don't want it at that specific moment, or they get distracted, or they open another tab, then it's gone forever. But if they're on my newsletter, they're going to hear about the products that I have every now and then. So yeah, like my, my website is there to drive signups. So as long as I post a couple new articles there, sometimes it's going to drive signups, and it's going to, it's going to hit the mark for what I need it to do for me, for my business. I see. Okay, so yeah. there's kind of a, this, if, if you have like a funnel sort of to your newsletter sign up, you look at it as like you have them hit them in the face with the, the sign up on the homepage. That's it. That's all there is here. If you want to go into the articles, you'll start kind of reading about it to get a, a feel for what the content will be in the newsletter. And then mm -hmm. maybe you'll sign up after that. Exactly. Because even though I don't have share buttons on my website and I don't, that's not a KPI that I care, a key performance indicator that I care about. People do mm -hmm. share my articles. And what I found too, is that if I, if I spend, my time writing quality articles and I send them to my list and then like 20, 30,000 people read them, they're going to share them. Like I don't need to, I don't need to keep asking them to share. So I don't need to put share buttons, but they, they do get shared a lot and people share articles more on my site than anywhere else. So that does drive people because you need to have traffic to get newsletter signups. So that, yeah. that accounts for enough traffic to drive my newsletter growth. Okay. Yeah. But so say I, okay, I get your, your email on Sunday, right? And I like the yeah. email inside of it. Um, you're, you're seeing people from share, go onto your website and find the published article like later, or I'm, I'm missing like how they're actually oh, yeah. sharing the thing that they just got. So there's a button at the bottom that says share. And that takes okay. you to the web, to the, to the URL, the archive URL that MailChimp generates. And then people share it from there. Uh, yeah, see. there's okay, not so social media really share buttons. There's just a link in the footer right beside unsubscribe that says share. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But they're sh But the, what they're sharing is a link to the Mailchimp archive. Yeah, but then people okay. find it on my website too all the time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we had a question uh, this week. Um, people were asking about the Mailchimp archives and if you should keep them public in your newsletter or what you should do. And actually, on, on Hacking UI, we made a change uh, a little while back to publish the links that we do in our newsletter on the website itself instead of through MailChimp. Yep. And once we did that, we closed the MailChimp archive and tried to direct people to our own website. Um, but it's interesting how you are taking advantage of like the MailChimp website, how you're using that. Yeah, well, I couldn't do it because I, I think your way is smarter for your newsletter, but I couldn't do it that way because I would need to have published the article on my site first. And the whole reason for being for my newsletter is that you get the articles first on my newsletter, not on my website. Yeah. So I could pop, like I could have it set to publish like a minute before the MailChimp email goes out, but 
it works for me right now. It doesn't mean I probably won't test that in the future sometime, but it's working great for me now. But yeah, the way you do yours, it makes more sense to publish it on your website than through the uh, the share bar. So I think for that, like testing, like it, I don't think there's a best practice there. I think there's see what works for your list and your audience and what you email mm -hmm. people. Because hacking UI, the way you guys do it, works great for you guys. The way I do it works great for me. So there's no like, it's not one thing works the best. Cool. Okay. Awesome. Let's. Uh, there's an interesting question here. I want to jump to next um, about your product launch process. Um, so you're. It seems like you're launching products all the time. Um, can you go through that and kind of also talk about the differences between the products? Yeah, so right now, uh, the products that I launch kind of fall into two buckets. They're either software products, like SaaS apps, pretty much, or they're info products, so online courses. Okay. So they vary a little bit, but <laughs> what I found is that online courses, the majority of the sales happen right at launch, and launch can be a multiple instance. So every time I launch the same course, that's a launch. And then I see okay. the most sales at the time of that launch. It doesn't, you don't launch anything once. Otherwise you wouldn't make any money. You need to launch, you need to continue to launch things. So for info products, like I said, most of the revenue generated is at the time of launch. So I really promote up to the launch. So I spend months promoting, like looking at my, because I launch um, Chimp Essentials in a few weeks, like August, I have more work to do on that course than in September when the course is open because I'm sending emails to people who are interested but haven't purchased it. I'm sending emails to people who purchased it and I've just added some new lessons. I'm sending emails to affiliates who are going to be able to sell it and make money uh, as of September 1st. So I send probably more sales emails before the course is launched, getting people ready because people don't tend to buy things, especially on the internet, the first time they hear about it. Like if mm -hmm. you're selling a product and you mention it once when it's available, I try to promote the course more before launch. And then at launch, all I do is say like, hey, this thing I've been telling you about is now available. And I've written probably three or four articles that get into like the nuts and bolts of like every single thing that I do for launch on pjrvs.com slash a slash 100 and then pjrvs.com slash a slash 300 and then pjrvs.com slash a slash course. And I can post those in the chat later. But those kind of go through all of the things that I do to go from start starting a course to launching it. And that's like, there's no secrets. That's every single thing that I do, I list in those articles. And there's a lot of steps. And like, I'm looking at my to-do list now for September's launch of Chimp Essentials. And it's August, it's the middle of August right now. And I've probably got about 23 emails that I sent to different segments and to different people before the launch. And then at launch, I probably only send about eight or nine emails, like the course is launched and then a couple reminders and then a last chance to get the course before it closes email. So a lot of launching happens before the thing launches. For software, it's a little different. What I've noticed for subscription-based software is that the majority of the sales compound month to month. So in the software that I've launched will launch and there won't be as many sales, but then the next month there'll be more and then the next month there'll be more and because they're monthly subscriptions that compounds. So if we have like 100 people registered at, la at launch at month one, and then 50 people registered, then the next month we have technically 150 people buying. And then if 100 people register the next month, 
Then the next month we have 250 people buying. So it just kind of like, it kind of does this. Whereas course sales kind of do like that. And then there's a long tail, whereas <laughs> software is kind of like, it's just like those, those silly charts where it kind of goes up and to the left. So the, the marketing for software is a little different because you have to keep hitting people with um, a reason to buy the software. Like what, what, what I'm kind of focused on right now with marketing for software is sharing the success that customers have seen with the software and new features. Okay. We just like we kind of go back and forth. We kind of go back and forth between the two. Sorry, what did you say? You said sharing the success that customers have seen with the features. You mean like testimonials, or what do you mean by that? Exactly? Um, like more like case studies. Like this is what so and so did with mm -hmm. our software. This is the results that they saw with the software. This is how their business is better for using the software. It's kind of, it kind of follows that. So okay. it's not and it's not really like hey I, I'm so and so and I think this software is great. It's more like this is exactly what this person did with the software. This is why their business is better from it and you can connect the dots to why you should buy the software as well. And then we kind of alternate between those stories and then new features, new features, sell subscriptions. I see. Okay, cool. And where are you promoting the stories and where are you, this is, you know, in the newsletter you're sharing that so-and-so had success or this is uh... yeah, the newsletter for each of the software products. Um, it's also things like appearing on other people's podcasts and talking about it or putting those articles on the blog. But again, it's, it's all newsletter, but everything I do is newsletter based. So okay. it, it's sharing things with that newsletter for the, for the software product. Do you have, um, I know you have the creative class community, right? <laughs> and do you have other communities that you're also maintaining Facebook or any sort of other place? No, I have, I like, yeah, I, all of the community is um, on Slack for Creative Plus, and then I don't have communities okay. for anything else. Like, it would be very difficult to see a business case for having like a Slack channel for a soft for a SaaS that's eighteen dollars a month. That would be a lot of work, and that would just turn into a twenty four seven support channel. And we try to stay on top of our support emails as quickly as possible, but. If, it, if Slack was always open, people would just be always asking questions. It, it makes sense for something that costs a lot more money, but yeah, for, for 18 bucks a month, I don't, it, doesn't, it doesn't make business sense for us. Cool. Okay, that leads me to the next question is, you're saying us and we. So who's on your team? Who's working with you? Um, who's the we? Yeah, so for all my info products for my courses, it's just me. For the software, I work with uh, Jason Zook, who's pretty much operations for it, and Zach Gilbert, who's a developer, and then I do uh, marketing and UI stuff. So those are the two guys, and it's pretty much a dream team. Like we have somebody that handles making everything run. We have somebody that handles, you yes. Sorry. We have somebody that handles all of the design and the flows, which is me, and then somebody that writes, and then I do all the front end coding. And then somebody that does all the Rails development, which is Zach. So it's, okay, cool. Yeah, so it's pretty. It works really, really well. Like we work really well together. We're on Slack together because Zach's in Chicago in the states. Jason's in uh, San Diego in the states, and I'm on an island in Canada. So we're very like it's a triangle across North America of where we are physically. But yeah, we just use Slack to to talk and I talk to them pretty much all day, every day. How do you guys know each other and how did this kind of like partnership team uh, arrangement work, like start out? 
Yeah, so Jason is my internet boyfriend. So I've known him for a long time. We have a podcast together called Invisible Office Hours. And we've actually made a few online courses as well a couple years ago. So I've known him for a while. And then for season four of our show, Invisible Office Hours, we built our first software product. And we said, hey, we're looking for a developer co-founder. And we got, I don't know, probably about 20 people said like, hey, I'd like to do it. Zach emailed us and the email started with like, hey, weirdos, I'm Zach. And we are like, okay, you. So we talked to him on the phone a bunch of times. We talked to him on email a bunch of times. And we felt that one, he knew what he was doing, which is great. But two, he was really good at communication, which is really hard to find in a technical co-founder. So we were like, we got to work with Zach. And now we've started basically a parent company that we just keep creating software products out of. And yeah, it oh, works. Okay. It's, it's the three of us just kind of building things. Very cool. So everything's under that one that one parent company with the arrangement that you guys have. Yeah, exactly. Everything, all of our software is owned by Clientless, which is just the name, like our shell company. Like that's just where, what processes all the money and pays taxes. And then all the software that we have is just, are just products of that company. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Um, we've got a question that just has been rising up a little bit here. What has been your most successful content upgrades? So first of all, uh, my content upgrades we're talking about, that's what we uh, did this week in the lessons. We're talking about kind of like product or something being offered after a good blog post or um, like for additional value if you sign up for the newsletter. Um, I don't really do content upgrades, <laughs> but so but I do other things that I guess could kind of be considered content upgrades. Like at the end of all my articles for Creative Class, there's a sign up for seven free lessons and then that's an email course, which I guess is a content upgrade. And I've had okay. that converts really well. I think that automation sequence has sent out over 140,000 emails and I think probably about 10 or 15,000 people have signed up for it. And that converts to sales on creative class. So that's probably my best one. Like that's just been nuts. That's been written about in tons of places. And it's just, just it's, I think seven free lessons that get sent out every day over email, then a couple pitches, then a success story, because I know those work. And then a surprise bonus. That mm. works really well. I just ran a contest because I'm in the next issue of Offscreen Magazine. I think it's issue 15. So I just had like a contest on my site. So if you entered your email to sign up for my newsletter, you could win one of five copies. I just picked the winners yesterday. And that generated hundreds of signups last week. So I don't do like download a PDF like additional information from a blog post for a content upgrade, but I do things very similar to that. And I see those work. A, con a yeah. contest is a really cool idea. So you, you basically said anyone who signs up during this date and this date is entered into the contest? And, yeah, it's and basically if you sign up for the newsletter, you get entered to win. I track what page people sign up for. So if I see that they signed up from the contest page, they get added. And then the success message after they've signed okay. up is for an extra chance to win, tweet or share this on Facebook with this tag. And then I just put that into the pool as well. So people basically have two chances to win. And then that kind of creates some viralness to it because people are not only entering the contest, but they're sharing it as well. Yeah, and that, that seemed to work really, really well for me. Really cool, okay. I like that because it's kind of like, it seems like a lot of a value for your time. Yeah, exactly. It seems like a relatively simple thing to set up. Uh, you have something that people yeah. And I don't even have to, vehicle. it's off screen that's sending out the magazine, so I don't even have to do anything other than give him the, uh, <laughs> Kai the addresses. Cool. 
Cool. And you mentioned everyone. Wait, so he's so <coughs> no, they're just signing. That's against the list. They're also. just signing up for my list. And then if I pick the winners yesterday, and those people, I send their mailing addresses to Offscreen Magazine. So Offscreen sends. They don't sign up for Offscreen's list. They just get a print copy uh, because it's a print magazine of that. Yeah. I see. So on the contest page, sign up form. Yeah. They they enter yeah. their email address goes to you for your your yes. list and their mailing exactly. address. The and that's something that I learned from a lawyer is that I got you. If you're doing a co-branded webinar or you're doing a, and I know this is a question coming up about webinars. If you're doing a webinar or a contest you can't share those email addresses. So you have to pick one person who gets them because technically the implied consent is for one list. It can't be for multiple lists, which is part of um, email marketing law, which I've had to wow. spend so much time doing and learning about because I, I have a course on email marketing. So yeah, that's just something to, to be aware of that only one person can technically get those email addresses. Even if there's like a there would, uh, yeah, I, like I don't know how it would work there, if they could like double give double consent for two lists, but that would be something I'd probably ask a lawyer. <laughs> but just for a like sign up to win or sign up for a webinar, so, it's implied consent for one list only. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um. All right, so let's go on to the next question here. And I wanna jump ahead to one a little bit down. So what's one thing that you know now, but you wish you knew when you were Yeah, so I think out? probably the biggest thing is that just because, because I've worked for myself for close to 20 years now, and I figured when I started that working for myself meant that I work by myself. And what I found is that that's not necessarily the case, or that's not necessarily what makes working for yourself more fun or enjoyable or awesome as because you can always like there's ways to work with people where you're not like in business with them like obviously i own a software company with two other guys but like when we were launching courses just jason and i like we would just partner up for that one product and then we didn't own a company together we were just kind of partners or when i was just doing client work like sometimes i would work with writers or developers and there was a study done by Freelancers Union a few years ago that said that 80% of freelancers recommend other freelancers to clients. So building your network, I think, is so important. And building your network of people that do the same thing as you or people that do similar things to you. So if you're a designer, get to know writers and developers. Because if a client's like, I need this, and you're like, hmm. Then, but that kind of sucks. But if you can be like, well, I actually work with, I know this writer who's amazing, or I know this developer who's amazing, and I can vouch for them. And then you can bring them to the project, then you look really good to your client, and the, the project is much better because of it, right? So I think that's probably the biggest thing is that just because you work for yourself doesn't mean that you have to work by yourself. You can like partner up with people, even if it's just for a project, even if it's just for one little thing, or even if it's just a, like you guys started out as just a collaboration, right? For hacking UI and then you made it into like something bigger. Yeah, definitely. Actually, so, yeah. so you and I were working together first at a startup. That's how we met. Um, yeah, and then and then Hacking Wire was like, okay, let's start this project together. Ah, he had a blog in, in Hebrew about design, and we said, okay, let's do it. I speak English. <laughs> um, but yeah, exactly. That's a really cool tip. And a lot of people ask us about that because I know uh, actually right now, so everyone in the program yeah. is uh, is on their own, basically. There are no partners or teams in the program. 
And a lot of people ask us about that. If like how much, uh, you know, how to find a partner, if they need a partner, if, um, you yeah, know, how collaborations to make things so, fun. Okay. Even if it's just a collaboration for one little project, it still makes things fun. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, okay. So we talked <laughs> about online courses a little bit, um, but the next question here is, oh, you went into that already actually, what's the best yeah. strategy for launching an online course? Uh, do you, you talked about launching your products already. Do you see like something specifically uh, yeah, different like, with the course or? Not really. Like anything I said, else to the, add for courses, mm-hmm. for info products, it seems to be like launch is where the revenue spikes and the long tails and for software and SaaS and subscriptions, it compounds against each other. So you have to kind of plan your marketing accordingly. Yeah, I can, I'll paste mm-hmm. the, the articles into the chat. Okay. Uh, cool. Okay. That'd be awesome. Um, so on the topic of webinars, um, you run a lot of webinars and I know you guys did the, the podcasting, uh, podcast like a boss. what was it called? The podcasting, uh, webinar yeah. podcast, like a boss webinar. Um, and you do a bunch like that. So, um, how crucial are they to your brand? Um, tips for running successful webinars and everything related to webinars. Oh, Sugi, you're over here now. <laughs> I can't believe it's because I don't see myself. Yeah, so... Yeah, Crowdcast is causing a lot of problems today. We had a... Uh, this is the... We actually do the mentor session each week and also the Q&As on, on Crowdcast with the same computers and mics, and we didn't have this issue before. Let's see. All right, so talk to us. Yeah, talk to so us about I, webinars. It's kind of two, <laughs> and it's, it can kind of go in two directions. So. The first is a, a webinar as a lead gen, so a free webinar that you do that you're able to collect email addresses and then sell something. And those <clears throat> I find work really well because I think a lot of times with online sales, there needs to be like a trust and like a brand recognition and a bit of authority built. So if I'm on camera like this talking about what I have domain expertise in, then people are probably going to trust me or the people that would buy my course that would be more likely to buy something from me <clears throat> are going to trust me because they see that I know what I'm talking about, which is great. And then hopefully I can teach something. Hopefully I can make people smile and laugh because I like to try to be funny. And it just, it's a good way to kind of get my brand to people in real time and people, especially with things like Crowdcast, like people can be asking questions below, they can be chatting on the side and it builds kind of an atmosphere of like, engagement whereas if they just go to the website they read it a little bit by themselves people want to feel like they're part of something as well and i think webinars are a good way to do that because i'm interacting with people on the other side of the screen they're seeing people chat like it's just a good way to build um to build that domain expertise and and that authority and to build the trust to build the sale so that's that's one thing. The other thing, uh, what you were talking about, is I also sell webinars, basically, and I call them workshops just for a different word. But so, like, for podcasts like a boss, it was like 200 something dollars And you got um, myself, Jason, and then my friends, Kathleen and Emily, who run um, pot, who run Being Boss, an amazing podcast, probably one of my favorite podcasts. And it was the four of us. Mentors in the program as well. Yeah, that's right. I introduced you guys to Kathleen. So... 
Yeah, so people basically buy access to us live teaching. So it's like an online course, but it's live. And what we found with that is that it's just more interesting. Like it's like a live classroom with people all over the world. So the chat for that was just going nuts. Like there were so many people chatting, asking questions, talking, uh, students talking to other students. And it was just really interesting. And there's this energy and this vibe that kind of happens where everybody's kind of excited and they learn everything and then they can watch the replay if they want to learn even more. But yeah, it's just a different way to sell an online course as a live course. It can be really draining for somebody like me who's very introverted. Like I'll do one of those and it's like a three hour session and I'm done for the day. Like I'm exhausted. I can't do anything else. I can't even answer email, but it's still worth it because it's a good, <clears throat> like it's just good to kind of, it's also good because you do it in real time. So like when you're done, you're done. And if you can, if you can generate a substantial income from it, then you've just got paid a whole bunch of money to teach for three hours. And it's a lot of prep. Like you have to make all your slides. You have to obviously know the things you got to do some research, you got to test some stuff, but you basically do the work once. And then at the end of the, the time that you've taught it, you're done. Like you send the, the replays to everybody. You don't really have to do any more work. And then what I found as well is if you teach the same workshop a second time, you don't have to do any work other than promoting. So when I do a product called product to profit with Nathan Berry and Jason Zook, the first workshop took a ton of time. Like we spent hundreds of hours making the slides, doing the research, getting the presentations ready. The second time we taught it, we were like, we got on a call and we were like, what do we have to do? Okay, we need to email our mailing list to let them know that it's available, that let them know that we can, that they can buy it. We already had the slides done. We already knew our presentations. We already knew exactly what happened. We already had the recordings and everything set up to go once it was, once we taught it. You didn't have to do anything. Like, so if you teach workshops more than once, that's where you can kind of see the real value, the like time and money value that you can get. Cool. Very cool, very cool. Yeah. yeah. And, and that reminds me, so you talked a couple of times already now today about um, kind of like networking and being out there and you said now like I'm an introvert. And I remember reading, I think it was one of your newsletters or maybe it was your podcast episode where you said, um, you know, I don't like speaking at conferences, so I'm not doing things I don't like doing. Yeah. Um, so how do you as like a self-described introvert and someone who doesn't like putting themselves out there, I guess force yourself or get out there and network and meet people and do all these things that are so public and in front of everyone. Yeah. So I kind of like, I don't like doing things in person and because I live so remotely, it doesn't even make sense. Like to get like in order to travel, I need to pre-travel. Like I have to drive hours to the airport then fly from a little airport to a big airport. It just doesn't make sense. Like it's just ridiculous. So, but doing things like this, like you guys are in Israel, I'm in Canada. Like, it works like you don't have networking. You don't have to live in San Francisco to network like you guys know that even though there is a big tech scene where you guys are like, yeah. but, no, but you don't have, yeah, you don't have to live in like a tech hub or a place where everybody's doing a lot of the same stuff. Like I, like I live in the woods with a bunch of rednecks and chainsaws and pickup trucks. Like they don't know what the internet is and it doesn't matter because you can network on Skype or on Slack or on social media or just, emailing people like I talked to uh, Dan Mall last week, the guy who wrote pricing design for a book apart, probably the best book on for designers that I've read this year. And he was like, 
what I do. And he, he, he's such a nice guy. He does There's no ulterior motives either. He's like, if I see something I like on the internet, I email that person and tell them, thank you for making it. And that's, and like, he's built a mass. Yeah. He's built, he's a really nice guy. Like, let's not lie. He's such a good guy. But he also does, uh, he also does those uh, internships. Uh, I heard like he takes like designers and like, like eight month program. Uh, this guy. Yeah. Okay. Okay, cool. He's amazing. Yeah. He, Dan Mall does some really, really cool stuff. But like, that's how I met him. Like, that's how I know him is because he sent me an email thanking me for something that I wrote. And in turn, like last week, I had him on one of my monthly Q&A sessions for creative class. And he was exposed to thousands of people that take my course. And it's like, he, there was no intention of like him trying to get something from me. He read something I wrote. He liked it. He sent me an email thanking me. I looked at his stuff. I was like, holy shit, this guy does some amazing stuff. He's the way he runs his agency. Like his agency is just him and he brings on freelancers per project. So he works with the biggest companies in the world. He doesn't even technically have a company. He just has other freelancers, which he only brings on to projects that he knows. You can't be more than one degree of separation. He won't hire or he won't bring another freelancer into a project unless he knows them personally or he knows somebody that he's worked with that knows them and has worked with them personally. So again, networking is a good thing. So, yeah. Cool. We got yeah. onto this from webinars, but still, I think that's really important information. Yeah, really, really uh, just nice thing to do today on the internet because people are so quick to like, uh, I don't know, give comments and bad feedback and shoot down the, the people who are doing stuff. So really nice idea just to say thank you. Yeah. It's like the opposite of Hacker News or Designer News. Yeah, read it. Yeah. Um, and actually, there was you started talking about uh, product to profit, and there was a question about that too. Um, how much time exactly can you say went into the creation of product to profit or the finish your dream book? Um, both of those, like probably. Well, product to profit, it individually took less time to make because there was three of us, so the work was divided into three. For finish your damn book, that that was two of us, so it was half. So probably for any given workshop or online course, there's probably about 100 hours of work uh, to do it. So if it's just me, then it's I'm doing 100 hours of work. If there's three of us, then we're each doing a bit more than 30 hours of work. But then, like okay. I said, with product to profit, the first time we did it was probably 100 hours total. The second time we did it was maybe five hours total. Okay. Because we, everything was done. We just had to run it again. But, but even what you're talking about, even 100 hours doesn't sound like a like very much it sounds like you already have you know even for the first time you have your stuff down and I mean 100 hours is not that much time for putting together like these massive courses that you do with so much material and you know all yeah. this kind of system in place yeah exactly it is like it's a lot of work but it's not too much work and it's like if I look at like that's how much it, that's how much time approximately it takes to make the thing but then after it's launched then there's still like I put so version two of Chimp Essentials, version one was out in the spring and I put probably, I guess about a hundred hours of work into it. Version, I put about a hundred hours of work into version two as well because I wanted to do a lot more. I wanted to add. So if you're not changing anything, it's really easy to launch second time or third time. But I wanted to get, because when I launched Chimp Essentials, I didn't have the automate, I didn't have time to do all the automation stuff I wanted. So for version two, I really wanted to focus on making it automated. So the third time I launch it, it's going to take me a couple hours to launch it. 
but I didn't have time to get all of that done for the first. I just wanted to get the product great and launched, and then all the behind the scenes stuff I had to manually do. So now I've added all the automation stuff for my end. So from a student, it's going to be exactly the same. It's just I have to do less work as a creator. Cool. Wait, so can you talk about that automation? What kind of automation stuff are you doing for? You're talking about just the launch itself or, or during the course? Both. So a few of the things that I'm doing for that, because it's like the list is ridiculous for all of the things. So I segment my list really heavily. So if somebody signs up for notification, they're in a different segment than somebody who signs up for the six free lessons versus somebody who's an affiliate versus somebody who's purchased versus when they purchase versus whether they signed up for a webinar. So each of these different buckets of people get different emails. And so for the people who buy the course, I created a like an auto, a six, I think it's six email automation sequence that kind of goes through reminding people what they should be doing in the course and when. And so I, I find that post-purchase automation sequences work really well because they've already purchased something. So you just, it's your job now to make them happy with their purchase and to make them actually use the work and to actually do the work and then hopefully to share it or to join the affiliate program. So that took like writing those six emails took quite a bit of time because it's like 6,000 words or something like that. So, but then also things like the affiliate program I wanted to automate. So if somebody signs up for the affiliate program, they get like a goodie pack, they get taught how to use the affiliate program. They get shown some best practices for the affiliate program. If somebody signs up for the six free lessons, they get access to that, they get reminded of that, they get a few success stories, which obviously I like sharing, so I've talked about this a lot in this call. Um, they get a, a pitch email or two. So for every type of person that I get their email address or even for the webinar, like when I'm, I'm doing three webinars this time for Chimp Essentials. So if they sign up for the webinar, they get an email that they've signed up, they get reminders when it's starting, they get access to the replay, they get a surprise bonus, or it's not a surprise now, because I just said so it Those are three webinars, for, like pre-course, those are for the launch, or the, those are actual like part of the course they're getting? No, this is, this is sales funnel webinars. So these are people who haven't bought the course, who I'm teaching basically a free hour lesson for um, newsletter strategy that if they like how I teach that, then maybe they'll buy the course, which is $197. So, and they'll cool. probably do a discount or something too, which I haven't figured out yet, which I should. So yeah, like there's a lot of work, but like you don't have to start with that. You can always automate later. And that's what I like about automation is you can start small and then add in more automation. And then like when I launched Ship Essentials in the spring, I didn't know how it was gonna do. So I didn't wanna put like, all of my time into all of the periphery things. I just wanted to put all of my time into making a good course. Now that I know that it sold really, really well, I can put time into making it better and to make it so I can automate more, so I can spend more time selling the course and less time dealing with like writing and making like a hundred emails that need to go out to different people at different times. Okay, I see. So it was kind of like uh, once you had that that uh, not proof of concept even because it's way more than that. But you wanted to mm -hmm. it, and now it's kind of like on a auto drive course to be launched what every four months or something, and like kind of press. Well, it's going to be launched. Yeah, it's going to be launched every quarter, so it's going to be one month on, two months off. So if I need to update anything, because Mailchimp changes its UI all the time which was good when I was just a consumer, but it's annoying now that I sell a course that I walk through Mailchimp. So every time they change their UI, I have to re-record a whole bunch of lessons, which is fine because they had new features and then I can make more lessons. But 
it's a lot of work. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk about like community building. Uh, you talked about it with the newsletter, how you have these kind of like cool people that you like talking to on it. And uh, you have this thing, the rat people, right? These are your rats uh, that you're talking to. So first, quickly, like, how did the rat people thing get started? And then can you discuss kind of any tips you have for community building and people trying to build a community? Yeah, so the, the rat people thing got started because I wrote an article about my pet rats and about how most people dislike rats, not just as pets, but as, like, pests. But there's like 1% of the population or something that knows that rats are amazing pets. They're cuddly. They're social. One of them's sleeping on my lap right now because I'm like, there, there's the rat cage. Like I'm in, I'm in the rat room right now. That's where my office is. So, and I kind of drew a parallel to people that like rats to people that support your creative work. So in order, like not everybody needs to like the work that you do. Like nobody, not everybody's going to like the work that you do. So come to terms with the fact that that's not the case. So in order for your work to support you, the creative work that you do to support you, you just need to find like your 1%. You need to find your rat people. And that's how that started. So I wrote that article and then people started calling themselves like, oh, I'm your rat person. I'm on your newsletter. I buy your products. I was like, it's a, it's a good word for, for my audience. So I just started using it because everybody was using it. And so I think that kind of relates to community building in so much as you don't need to appeal to everybody. You just need to appeal to a, a like small group of people that share the same values, beliefs, motivations, pains. And then everybody else doesn't matter. Like the people that hate the work that I do or that send me mean emails, they're never going to buy anything. Like people that buy my stuff don't complain about my stuff. People that complain about my stuff are the people who are never going to buy my stuff anyway. So it kind of hurts like as a person with emotions, it hurts if I get a, a nasty email from somebody, but it's not going to affect my sales. It's not going to affect anything. And I think that a lot of people kind of have the illusion that they get the audience that they get, whereas you can intentionally build an audience of people that you want. So for me, like I swear in my articles, I make silly comments. I always have the weirdest non sequitur like stories that I tell. And that all kind of relates to me building an audience of people who share those same, like if somebody's going to get, so offended that they want a refund because I say fuck, then I don't know. It's not like I swear all day, every day, but if somebody's that offended by one thing, then they, they're probably just going to be a pain. Not your, not your no, and they can find, they can go buy all of Michael Hyatt stuff because he has such a problem with swearing too. And then, perfect. Go buy his <laughs> stuff. The, like, so you can kind of differentiate. And I use a lot of tongue in cheek language and I, I don't talk down to my audience and I don't talk to them as if they're stupid, but I talk to them as if they do dumb things. Sometimes they're smart people that sometimes don't do smart things because I'm a smart person who sometimes doesn't do smart things. And I, the way that I write is very intentional. So I, I typically write my articles as if I'm in the exact same place. And I use words like we and us because I'm writing as if I'm part of the group, not like Paul's up here and everybody else is down here. Like, that's not the type of audience that I want to build where people are like, oh, I want to be like Paul Jarvis up here. It's like, no, I'm just some guy who does stuff on the internet and writes about it. I want people to feel like they're, they're part of it with me and not seeing like Paul's commandments from on high. So I think the more intentional you are with building an audience, the better an audience that you can build because it's an audience like, if I talk to my audience, like if, if we Skype or we email with each other, like I like these people. Like these are all smart people who are doing interesting things. And every time I talk to them, 
I feel good that I've built an audience of people that I that I really enjoy talking to and that I really enjoy communicating with. Cool. I mean, I it sounds amazing. I just have to like push you further on this one because I know if you're starting out, right, you don't always have that luxury to say like, ah, I'm only gonna target my thing to only the cool people, only the people that are perfect like me. You know, you get excited. You're trying to build a list. You're trying to build this audience, and at the beginning, you know, it, you're. It, it might be harder to stick to it. I don't know. Maybe you're saying like, if you stick to it, if you only do, only stay true to yourself, then you'll build that audience. But what do you do when you're starting out? So I think uh, you have to do that when you're just starting out. Otherwise, it all falls apart. Like if you look at any, okay, even designers, because we're like talking mostly to designers. The designers that have the most opinion are the ones that you know. Like you know who Jeffrey Zeldman is. You know who like Dan City Home is. You know who like lots of other designers are. You only know the designers who have opinions about things. So they've drawn their line in the sand. They've been intentional with the type of audience they want or they don't want from the beginning. And that's what I did from the beginning. And I 100% I understand what you're saying because it is difficult, it is hard, it is scary to do that. Like I'm 100% behind that. That is, that is a difficult road to go. But it's also like there's no wishy-washy designers who you've heard of or that do talks at conferences or that sell products that you might buy that don't that don't have an opinion. Like mm -hmm. in order to be a, an authority or a, have domain expertise, you have to have an opinion. Having an opinion is scary, but isn't like that's part of it. Otherwise, if you don't have an opinion, then nobody's going to listen. People, if you have an opinion, people might listen and disagree with you, but they'll have heard of you. Good point. Yeah. Very cool. I know just from our own experience, we've had uh, emails before where there was one time in our subject line for our email every week is always uh, three uh, of the links that we share, the title of the of each uh, three links. And one time we shared a link that in the title of the link, it wasn't even our own, it was something like uh, good, good fucking startup advice. That was the so we, we shared the title of the link. It was a good link, a great link. And yeah. uh, we got like immediately after sending out the email, I think we got something like five or six emails back with people saying, you know, I, how could you do that? You know, how dare you think this is the end? I don't know. How could you put the word fuck in a subject line? You know, he said, this is the name of the product. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I, I totally agree. And it's like uh, something I, I, I hope that we, we also want to try to like stay true to ourselves, stay strong. Exactly. But it's scary sometimes. You know, when you send that email, I remember sending that email and then instantly, you know, five minutes later, 10 minutes later, emails just coming in one by one. Like, you said, fuck, fuck you. Fuck, like, how can you do that? You know? So it's scary. You're saying, wait, did we do something wrong? You're questioning yourself. No, oh, I, I, I really got like, Ever since I heard one of your uh, episodes in the Invisible Office Hours with Jason, that you guys talked about, um, you talked about exactly this subject, and you also said something that really kind of like I connected with, and since then I preached too, like, um, which is you want to have a cup of coffee with each one of your audience. So it's like those kind of people that you just want to sit down for coffee with, and all the others that you know are now with your in one line with your values and what you do it's like not your audience and it's cool and yeah. since then i i don't care about swearing anymore on our podcasts or you know on, on anything like that and i don't I, really i every time i like we get into somebody who's kind of like not liking our stuff i'm like okay that, that's cool you can not like us that you you're allowed to not like what we do exactly the internet's a big place there's so many other people 
I think I think there's also uh, something I think we've come to realize, and maybe you have your thoughts on this, but I think there's also a misconception on the internet when you're doing like internet marketing or growing an audience or something that you have to have kind of like a million fans. I remember when we were starting, we we're looking at like Smashing Magazine. I see you know they have like two hundred thousand subscribers on their list, and you know uh, three million views to the website a month, something like this, and are saying, okay, so you have to get there if you want to you know have a career in this business. And I think that that's kind of like a misconception. What do you say? Yeah, I mean, I was like, it depends what you do. Like when I was just doing web design, if I had 20 people that bought my services a year, that was enough. Like that supported me and my life 100%. 20 people, that's it. Mm -hmm. When I was selling books, obviously there needs to be a bit more. When selling courses, there needs to be a bit less in books because courses cost more. But Everybody starts somewhere and like my list started with zero people on it Your guys's list started with zero people on it and like we signed up to test it and then we had like one person or two people on our list So yeah, it's okay to start somewhere and I think the, the We get caught in this comparison trap of like oh so-and-so has this many followers or this many sales or Blogged about this six-figure month and I don't have that and I'm a failure and it's like Everybody's just kind of where they're at with stuff and you don't know the whole story with anybody or you don't know how much they spent to get there or You don't know how much time they spent to get to the audience that they have or maybe like I have, I have friends that have mailing lists of like 800 people that routinely do 50 60 K a month with sales because their audience is so tuned in to what they want and needs what they want so badly that like it it doesn't have to be like, I haven't even noticed an income, like a massive income increase from going from like thousands of people on my list to tens of thousands of people on my list. Like it's maybe gone up a bit, but it's still, it's still the same core engaged people on that list. So, yeah. So what would you say is like kind of, I imagine there was a point in your career and in your like audience growth that you reached a sort of critical mass. Um, can you define like in numbers or what that point was? Yeah, I don't think it's it, it's a numbers thing. I think it's more I, I properly established domain expertise in the niche that I was in. So I started that's and that's why in the beginning I was writing so many guest articles. I was showing up because I didn't have an audience. I had there were people on the internet who would be part of my audience if they knew who I was, but they didn't know who I was. So okay. I had to go to where they were spending their time currently because they weren't on my website because they didn't know who I was. So that's why I had to do things like tons of podcast interviews, tons of guest writing, appearing in other people's webinars, doing a bunch of like online summits and workshops and that sort of thing. So building it up. So eventually people start to see my name around. And then if they're going to, if they see a product, then they're like, okay, I've heard of this guy, Paul. This guy, Paul is everywhere. I, he probably knows what he's talking about. Now I think I'm ready to buy one of his products. So yeah, it just, it's a ton of time to, and work, but it, it's worth it to kind of establish yourself as, as an expert. Cool. Yeah. I, know, I know we're at 66 minutes, so is it okay if we just run through a last uh, couple of questions Yeah, a couple here? more questions, and yeah, let's, let's do it. Okay. Um, so uh, has your Twitter ad for newsletter signups been effective? This is cool. I saw, yeah. I saw I did this one recently, right? Yeah, I have a Twitter. Well, I've had a Twitter card since Twitter cards came out, and at first people were like, what the hell? You're stealing my email address from Twitter. And I'm like, this is functionality that Twitter built. Like, so people didn't even <laughs> understand who Twitter cards were when I started to use them. But it doesn't account for that many signups. But again, it's, it's, for me, it's more brand recognition. So people see my profile and 
they and that like a lot of people look at my profile for some reason. Like I see the stats for it in ads.twitter.com, and people see that I have a newsletter. So if they if, even if they don't click the button there, there it's in their minds. Like Paul Jarvis, he writes the Sunday Dispatches newsletter, and then maybe they'll go to my site a, a day or two later, and they're like, "Oh yeah, I saw this." Or maybe they'll listen to a podcast, and I'm on that podcast. I'll be talking about the Sunday Dispatches. They're like, I keep hearing about this pod. I keep hearing about this newsletter. I have to sign up for this newsletter. So I, it's just like. All of these little, all of these little like things happening, and then if they keep hearing about you, or they keep hearing about the things that you do, then they're gonna be way more likely to. All of these little social signals are going to trigger that trust and that brand recognition and that authority that you need to get people to actually do the thing that you want them to do. Which for me is always sign up for less. Be in front of people's faces, right? Yeah, exactly. So one of your courses costs ninety-seven dollars. Why this number? Why not two hundred or one ninety-nine? One ninety-seven. No idea. That's just a number that that's just like, I knew it had to cost about $200. And I just, I've always charged even numbers for my courses because I always think like, <laughs> why? It's the same price, like 199 or 197 to 200. It's the same price. But I was just like, okay, I'm curious. Like, is this going to do better or worse? than if I price it at 200, I don't know. The verdict's still out on that, but that's just me playing with, I knew it's worth $200. Like I can easily prove the value of this course at that price to people like I, they're going to make their money back if they take the course pretty much. So I needed to charge about that much money, but then, yeah, I just like, I could have charged $202. I may charge $202 in the future just to test it out. But yeah, that's just me playing to see um, what works. Cause I think experimenting is a, is a big part of things. Okay. I think the last two questions we covered uh, yeah. pretty much um, anything you have to say to the people in the course, anything like tips that you have for people starting out now, or just something like you want to leave them off with? Sure. I think the biggest thing that I see people fail with is they don't develop the consistency needed to get somewhere. Like they try something for a few weeks and then, oh, my blogging doesn't work because I posted a blog to my website. It's like nobody's blog works if you post one article, but if you post an article a week for a year, or for two years, or you have a podcast that you've had a few seasons with, like people don't start to see success right in the beginning, unless you've already had success with something else. Like it just doesn't work like that. You need to keep at something for a, a long time. You need to be consistent with it. Cause then that shows your audience that you care enough to be consistent with it. And they will reward you by listening and paying attention and hopefully buying things. If you sell things. Cool. Yeah. Advice. Cool. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. Thank well, you very much. Thanks Paul. so much, man. Really appreciate yeah, it. That was no awesome. Thanks, Apologize Jeff. about the technical uh, difficulties there yeah. at the beginning. No, so, no, no worries. I, I'm used to it. It's 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 live video. It always happens. <laughs> Broadcast live. Talk about it. Cool. <laughs> All right. Have a great rest of the day. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Bye, bye.